Greetings and welcome to the Heart Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cordova. The Heart Hall Podcast is a show dedicated to highlighting the faculty, staff, and guests of the University of California Davis's Ethnic and Gender Sexuality Studies departments housed in Heart Hall and under the Heart Interdisciplinary Programs umbrella. In this episode, I welcome Sunaina Myra onto the program. Sunaina is a professor with our Asian American Studies Department, whose areas of research include South Asian, Arab, and Afghan American Studies, the War on Terror, Transnational, Ethnic Studies, and more. She came on to discuss those topics as well as Palestinian hip-hop, teaching during lockdown, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and how that related to her research on the topic, and her upcoming presentation, Digital Storytelling in a Time of Crisis, Migration, War, and Pandemic. This is an in-person event which shares the stories of Yemeni and Arab Americans in Oakland during the pandemic. The event will be held on Wednesday, October 20th at UC Davis in Hartholz Riesling Room 3201. For more information on the event, please check out the link in the episode description. Now here is my conversation with Professor Myra. How have you been in this last year and a half considering, you know, work from home, the pandemic, and just the very odd time that we're all currently living in? Um, the last year has definitely been an odd time, but I think it has also been a moment um, for me, like for many others, to pause and reflect on, you know, the work that I've been doing, the life that I've been living, the kinds of education that we're engaging in. And so I guess that, you know, the two things that really um, have stood out for me uh, during this last year are one, trying to learn how to teach virtually while also trying to manage my young daughter's Zoom schooling. Uh, she just started fifth grade and spent a year and a half trying to do elementary school you know, at her computer. Um, and I think that through that experience, it's really, you know, uh, sort of just made me reflect so much on what it is to be a teacher. Um, and then the second thing that I think has really um, been at the forefront of my mind is the ways in which this crisis illuminated the deeper inequities in our society, but also globally that were so stark during the COVID-19 pandemic, because there are some communities that were already struggling with healthcare and employment and, you know, um, lack of educational equity um, and confinement. Uh, and then there were other communities, I think, for this was for whom this was very, very new and kind of, you know, earth shattering. And that kind of differential in inequity and an experience of crisis has really informed the research that I was doing during that time, too. Um, we will definitely come up to your to your research that you've been doing in that time, because I think it sounds really interesting. But um, I wanted to ask about how has essentially being twice the teacher been for you, because I'm assuming you're helping out with your your daughter's fifth fifth grade because I have a niece who just started school is as, as in kindergarten and I, it was a time for her so how uh, how has that been helping her out <laughs> that has been disastrous let me just say <laughs> I think in a one word I realized that I am not an elementary school teacher one and that secondly a parent is not always the best you know um, homeschooling teacher for a young child especially and so I guess what I meant by saying that that was like the foremost challenge for me to be really honest you know I mean I'm privileged to have a tenure job as a university professor so it wasn't so much the job security but trying to actually work with a young child to do learning through a screen um, when, you know, she was already feeling, you know, so alienated and isolated, I think was really hard. And, you know, Daniel, I don't know how it is 
for your needs. But, you know, I think at that level, an elementary school, like virtual learning is really not ideal. And at the same time, I couldn't help thinking, you know, we had three devices in our home. You know, I'm fortunate to have this UC Davis laptop and, you know, my daughter was able to use another old one. And so we had no issues around the lack of access to technology, but I think it's just learning in an isolated way is very, very difficult for young children um, and also for adults. But I was able to try to create a learning pod for her with a tutor and another fourth grader last year. And that helped enormously because it really underscored for me how um, social learning is, how important the social relationships are. And, you know, my daughter is a real extrovert. She's a social butterfly. And I think just for so many children, you know, it's the peer contact, it's the relationship with the teacher and other staff that is so key. And, and that's something they lost. And you mentioned um, adults being educated in this sort of way. How has being the educator been for like college students it's been a real struggle, Daniel. And one of the things that I've really wrestled with, um, honestly, more than the other issues around the technology or just the technical aspects, you know, the nitty gritty tools that we were using on Zoom, is the uh, anxiety, for lack of a better word, that I think undergraduate students bring to their interactions with teachers via Zoom. And what I came to realize is that a lot of our students are really hesitant and also sometimes quite anxious about suddenly shifting to being seen on camera in the context of a classroom. And initially, you know, going into this as someone who also studies youth culture, I was convinced that they would not have a hard time and that I, you know, the dinosaur, the OG who didn't grow up with social media was going to be struggling with this and, you know, how to relate to people, you know, via this digital interface. Yet what I found is that the majority of my students were not comfortable turning on their webcams. Um, and it led to a lot of issues in terms of, you know, um, difficulty staying engaged, responding, participating, despite all of these like group exercises and breakout rooms and other tools that I was trying to do to make them feel comfortable and included. And so, you know, I'll just say very briefly, um, that I kind of turned it into a research project and I did a survey with them um, at the end of fall quarter last year where I asked them what the factors were leading to their hesitation to turn on their webcams, you know, and why I was staring at a blank screen most of the time. And they admitted the majority of my students in both my classes said that they feel a lot of anxiety being seen by their peers and by others because of social media, because they grew up with Instagram and, you know, TikTok and so on. And so it's kind of counterintuitive, but it made me understand that it's very fraught. Like they have a lot of, you know, feelings of being judged, you know, for their appearance and so on. Um, and it was just too much for them, you know? I'm starting to feel very self-reflexive because currently we have our cameras off, which is better for audio recording because then it cuts into my Wi-Fi's like bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, my camera's off, but I am somebody who has like a obnoxious social media presence. I put my voice out there a lot. I'm a musician who gets on stage in front of people and dances around uh, foolishly while playing bass, but I much prefer not to have my face on a camera. Uh, and that's just, that seems normal to me. As you're describing it, I was like, oh no, is my brain wired a certain way because of Facebook and MySpace, all the stuff I grew up with. Mm -hmm. So uh, cool. Now I'm 
got that thing about. <laughs> I mean, I do want to acknowledge the technical issues that you mentioned in the beginning. I mean, that was one of the factors that, you know, they pointed to in terms of bandwidth and, you know, feeling like they were in spaces sometimes or on their phone. But I think it's more that, you know, um, it, that, that bringing that experience of being judged for that, their appearance by their peers on social media to the classroom made it very fraught for them because they're used to being in a classroom physically with teachers and having the teacher look at them, but not look at them through the screen. So I think in the context of pedagogy, the screen is actually a problem for in, in that regard, you know, if you really want to be interacting. So I'm really looking forward to seeing them in person. I'm so excited about that. Uh, I kind of want to find out more about you, like, and how you got to where you are. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in India and I came to college in the U.S. Uh, you know, I studied in the East Coast. I actually did a doctorate in um, education and I was very interested in the experiences of um, youth from immigrant families, um, kind of like my own, because my parents also migrated from India while I was in college. And so I had this experience of being, you know, somewhat of a second generation Indian American. And I also realized there was very little research, especially at that time in Asian American studies on second generation, you know, South Asian youth in the US. So my own personal experiences really kind of informed that early research that I did. And then after 9-11 happened, um, you know, I actually did a study of the impact of 9-11 on South Asian Muslim immigrant youth, um, you know, looking at, you know, the experiences of these communities during the war on terror. Um, yeah, so I think my personal background has always been very connected to the kinds of research I take up. That actually leads me to uh, a question I had a bit later, but I'll ask it now. Well, a lot of the uh, topics that you research and are listed on your bio about you are things that unfortunately have not gone away in the last 20 years because of things like xenophobia surrounding 9-11. You wrote a paper um, about five years ago, about 15th anniversary of 9-11. We just passed the 20th. How has um, your research and your opinions on the whole situation changed or evolved over the last 20 years? Because it, it seems like it's been a huge part of things that you've worked on. That's a great question, you know, Daniel, thank you, because I think that, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago on the 20th anniversary, I was reflecting on this in collaboration with some other South Asian progressive activists in the Bay Area, and we had a dialogue um, about the ways in which, you know, uh, the impact of 9-11 has transformed our communities, but also our activism, and it actually led to a co-authored report on the impact of 9-11 on progressive organizing, you know, particularly in the Bay Area among South Asian communities that were impacted. But I guess what I would say is that I think the impact of 9-11 is persistent in ways that other people who are not impacted directly don't always understand. And what I mean by that is that all those policies that violated the civil rights of Muslim, South Asian, and Arab Americans after 9-11 continue to this day, but people are actually less aware of it. In many cases, I mean, there were moments during the Trump administration where people woke up and, you know, acknowledged that, you know, there was profiling and, you know, intensified Islamophobia under Trump. There was also the Muslim bans, obviously. But I think in general, over the course of 20 years, what's happened is a lot of those state policies have become more covert. And so they're more insidious. So to give one example, 
you know, there weren't, there aren't necessarily, you know, um, state agents going around and rounding up Muslims in the masses and herding them into detention facilities or deporting them overseas like they did in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. However, there is secret there's secret raids that happen, there's secret blacklisting, there's no fly list, there's actually all kinds of irregular passport confiscations of Arab and Muslim Americans. Um, and there is also covert in, you know, intelligence gathering that has continued and become more sophisticated. Um, and so I think there's a kind of invisible war on terror that continues to really target these communities and has created a chilling effect. But the flip side of it, and this is just the last point I'll make, is that there's also been growing activism. And so I think the shift that I've also seen, which I documented in this report with um, this South Asian group, Asata, that I've worked with, is that there has been much more, you know, um, in incredibly energetic and vigorous and public organizing um, with a younger generation, particularly of Muslim and South Asian American activists. Oh, you mentioned doing research in the Bay Area, and there's a section in your bio that reads, uh, quote, her transnational research project focuses on Arab refugees and immigrants in the Bay Area and Athens, Greece. Um, I, I know you're somebody who is Oakland based, so I can assume part of the Bay Area might be proximity based. But why Athens, Greece? That's not someplace that initially pops to mind for me, particularly as uh, a hotbed of Arab refugees. <laughs> well, you know, this harks back to the global refugee crisis of 2015, when there was a massive influx of refugees from Syria, in particular, into Europe, and Athens was the gateway. So Athens actually has a huge Arab refugee population. And I think this issue is more on the radar in Europe, you know, than it is here. But Greece became the landing spot of all of these refugees from Syria, as well as from Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, who were pouring into Europe, you know, often across the Mediterranean Ocean on very risky boat journeys. And so Athens has been transformed into a hub of refugees from all over the world, living in a very precarious situation, trying to get asylum in other more wealthy countries in Europe where they want to land up. So in fact, there was a huge refugee solidarity movement that sprang up in Europe. So this preceded you know, the crisis under Trump a little bit. So I think they've been a little bit ahead of this there because the crisis has been so acute in Europe and because the US has refused to take any of these refugees, right? I mean, that is the whole, the painful irony of this. Um, so the refugees that were fleeing these conflicts in which the US was involved from Afghanistan to Syria, and then before that in Iraq, um, have all, uh, many of them have made these temporary homes in Athens, in in a city that was already struggling economically. Um, and so in fact, um, the research that I was trying to do before the lockdown was with doubly displaced Palestinian refugees from Syria who had already been refugees fleeing Palestine and who had been living in Syria in refugee camps until the civil war broke out in Syria when they became twice refugees and then ended up in Greece. And so I was actually trying to do comparative research on the strategies that organizers, including refugees themselves, use to support refugee rights in different locations and how that was different in, in Greece in particular and in the Bay Area here. And you, you mentioned Palestine, which is another one of the uh, topics of your research that seems to be evergreen. 
uh, unfortunately, due to you know everything going on there. And in the spring, it, it came to more people's minds again as the everything going on there became mainstream once again. Uh, in 2018, you wrote Boycott the Academy and Justice for Palestine, and it seems to be you know super relevant again. How like are are you already gearing up to have a follow up for that ready? Are like what is what's going on for you with everything going on uh, with with Palestine right now? That's such an important question, and I really appreciate also how you framed it, pointing out that this is you know a continuing issue. And I really I couldn't agree with you more, Daniel. That I think that the recent spate of violence that happened this spring in Palestine made the issue more mainstream. And I noticed that more people in the mainstream sphere who don't necessarily feel connected to this issue were actually very concerned and even outraged about this kind of like ongoing abuse of human rights and, you know, the dispossession and the displacement of Palestinians from their homes by illegal settlers. And I think that crisis that erupted yet again has made the call for um, international solidarity even more urgent than ever. So the book that I wrote, um, on the academic boycott movement was, um, in fact, uh, an attempt to create a kind of collective, um, you know, memory and um, activist history of the academic boycott movement as a social justice movement for global human rights. Um, and so the call for boycott, which is based on the principles of international human rights, trying to pressure Israel to comply with human rights, as it was in the case of the boycott and divestment movement in um, solidarity with Af South Africans resisting apartheid um, is one that has actually been amplified since then. So what I am seeing, I think what is on my mind currently, and I, I was thinking, you're right, maybe I should go back to thinking about that book or updating it in some form, is that I am I'm finding so much more support and so much greater solidarity than ever before, especially in the U.S. Academy. This was always a very difficult issue to talk about, there's been so much censorship and silencing. And so people often felt very intimidated and really quite, you know, scared to talk about it for fear of retaliation. But I think there's a growing consensus that this injustice has to stop. And I think people are seeing it through the lens on the one hand of racial justice as a problem of racism, and on the other hand of settler colonization, which has brought in so many other colonized and indigenous groups, you know, to stand in solidarity and to reframe this problem finally. So I'm actually very heartened in a way. Uh, I want to kind of shift the conversation about Palestine just a little bit to something else that you focused on earlier in your career which was Palestinian hip hop. I am somebody that loves music and I'm always, I love finding new scenes that you don't expect or don't know about or don't totally break. Um, have you kept up with the band uh, DAM, D-A-M? I didn't know if it was something they spelled out or if it's just all caps DAM or the scene in general since your 2012 and 2013 pieces on the subgenre. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked about that. I love um the uh, sort of uh, fact that you, uh, you know, sort of spotted my interest in uh, Palestinian hip hop. You know, um, I, uh, I'll just make one comment, which is that, you know, actually, in some ways, the pioneers of um, Arabic uh, rap uh, in the region, you know, in the Middle East were from Palestine, there was North African 
um, rap that was being mixed with different kinds of folk music and that was happening in migrant communities in Europe and in France, for example, but really in the region, particularly conscious rap, as one would call it, right, or progressive rap, the old school version, that was actually really, really um, sort of something that was sparked in Palestine, particularly by Palestinians living in the quote unquote ghettos of Israeli cities as like second, third class citizens akin to poor black and brown youth here in urban areas who created hip hop. And so there is a lot of influence of like progressive rap, old school rap on these Palestinian rappers and the scene has really evolved. And so, you know, by the time I published that book, which was about um, the ways Palestinian rap has contributed to youth organizing and been part of the youth movement during the Arab uprisings, you know, the so-called Arab Spring in the region, the scene has really expanded. And, you know, there are so many more women rappers, for example, there's all kinds of experimental rap, there's, there's rap and, you know, EMD, EDM, and I mean, all kinds of things are going on. I sadly have not been able to keep up with it. Um, and part of it is because I haven't been able to travel to Palestine. And the reason I haven't been able to go back to do more research um, and travel there is because of the uh, ban on uh, boycott um, advocates. So Israel, the government of Israel actually issued a kind of you know public ban saying that they would not allow any boycott advocates to enter. Um, and so the whole issue of kind of confinement and the way hip hop is a medium for people to talk about their stories when they are locked up or when they're encaged is so tied up with the whole context for doing the research. So these are the same issues I talked about in that research, how music becomes um, a medium for telling a story that can you know, travel across borders when people can't travel across borders. You know, that issue is sadly reflected in my own logistical issues around the research itself. Uh, did you look into other music genres of the region? Because I, I know, like I, I'm somebody that's rather in tune with heavy metal, and I know of one band from Palestine. Um, do you know, did you look into any others during your any of this other stuff that you were doing? You know, that's a good question. Yeah, I think I was hearing a little bit about heavy metal even back then, but you're probably more up to date than I am through your networks. Um, at the time, um, I was specifically focused on hip hop because, um, you know, I think there's so much to be said about every genre, right, that I didn't want to spread myself too thin. But also, secondly, there's a kind of substantive reason, which is that hip hop was kind of the progressive voice of Palestinian youth organizing of this generation. I mean, that's the genre they specifically chose. And so the book is actually a kind of like reflection or interrogation of why hip hop, like why would these Arab youth be, be choosing, you know, hip hop, including not just the music, right, but also, you know, the graffiti, emceeing, DJing, all the other elements that constitute, um, you know, the genre of hip hop, like all of those were very much alive um, and being propagated in Palestine. And so I think there's a specific progressive people of color politics that Palestinian youth, um, as other youth in the region do, associated with hip hop. That said, they were mixing hip hop with Palestinian folk music. Um, and so I did get interested towards the end of my research, like after the book came out, I got interested in this other group called 47 Soul. And 47 Soul mixes rap with folk music, um, particularly dubke. So they're actually um, kind of uh, using digital forms of dubke music and instruments that are used in dubke and mixing that with rap. And it's very very political and the members of the group come from different locations of the Palestinian diaspora. So it's a really, really beautiful, um, uh, their work is really beautiful. What kind of instrumentation are you referring to? Cause I'm not familiar with the genre itself, but I, I love hearing 
because uh, like I said, I'm mostly metal, indie indie rock, but I'm open to all kinds of uh, new to me instruments. Yeah, so for example, in the work of 47 Souls, some of the music that they did early on, which was really quite remarkable, included the mijwiz, which is a reed uh, instrument, it's like a wind instrument, and that is used in dubke, and it has like a very beautiful quality, and they were actually mixing that with rap, but also with electronic music, um, and there's also a member of their group who does acoustic guitar, he was like a solo musician, but got involved, um, and they were also then incorporating the dance form, so in their concerts, it's very performative they were actually doing dabke and dabke is a folk dance it's a line dance very similar to other line dances around the Mediterranean where people are holding their hands uh, locking arms and stamping with their feet it literally means to stomp dabke and so there's a lot of stomping you know so it's really kind of remarkable the way they choreographed their music um, and then there are people who are bringing in the oud the oud um, you know uh um, the lute, uh, the Arabic lute, um, and also including that. Uh, so, you know, I'm not an ethnomusicologist per se. I look at it more from the perspective of how music is a site of identity making and um, politics. Um, but, but it is really incredible, the artistic experimentation that is going on. Um, and then, of course, all the debates around it. Uh, I'd like to then shift to the uh, most recent research that you've been doing over the last year and a half during the pandemic, because I know uh, when it first started, what was your initial plan? And I know you had to pivot. So uh, I like I, I know there was a title that I read, Sanctuary, Solidarity and Missing Stories, Arab Immigrants and Refugees in the Trump Era. Was that the initial project or is that still what it is called? Yeah, that is a vexed question. So that was the initial project because, you know, when I submitted the proposal to do this research and to get funding um, from the Mellon ACLS Foundation for public scholarship to do that work, it was actually, you know, after Trump's election and there was a very vigorous sanctuary movement that was springing up everywhere, right? Including in Davis, on campus, in the Bay Area, around the country. But at the time, I was sort of concerned that the experiences of Arab refugees which we were discussing earlier, were not being inserted into this debate as much as I thought they could be, you know, in the experiences of Muslim refugees. Now, this, of course, you know, amped up after the Muslim ban, and there was for a moment, like some attention to the ways in which, you know, Muslim and Arab refugees and migrants are being impacted by the border crisis and family separation. But it didn't seem like it was being adequately addressed, including sometimes in activist movements, that were for very good reasons focused on Latinx uh, migrants um, and the US-Mexico border because of our proximity to that border. So, you know, of course it makes sense, but I thought there was a need for more research that would actually include these missing stories of Arab and Muslim refugees. Now, you know, the sanctuary movement waned after a while and people, you know, shifted to the next crisis, but those experiences have persisted. And so by the time I got around to doing my research, you know, I actually realized that, you know, there's a huge Yemeni population, a community migrated from Yemen in the Bay Area, who have been fleeing, you know, persecution and war and the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which is currently, you know, the worst in the world, um, but who have not registered in this debate about refugees. And so I ended up doing research you know, in 2019, uh, 2020, and I'm continuing that today on the experiences of Yemeni Americans who are caught between the war in Yemen and the pandemic here in the US. And part of that research that you've since pivoted to is 
how how they are still out there in essential worker positions. Uh, could you elaborate more on that, please? Yeah. So, you know, the reason I actually pivoted in part to looking at the experiences of Yemeni Americans in particular is that many of them own corner stores in the Bay Area. And so there's a certain niche, interestingly, that Yemeni Americans have come to occupy as small business owners who, you know, own, um, you know, have family owned um, grocery stores, you know, throughout um, the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland um, and Berkeley. And so I actually realized that I was not going to be able to do the kind of field work that I had hoped to do once the shelter in place order was established in California. So during the lockdown, I pivoted to actually, you know, look at grocery stores because I could go into my grocery shopping and I actually wanted to support these small businesses anyway, rather than going to Trader Joe's. Um, but I was able to kind of use the corner store as a kind of lens to look at these multiple crises that this community was facing that reflected like, you know, the national crisis, the local crisis, and also this global crisis um, around both the pandemic and, um, you know, borders. While you were uh, doing your research at the corner grocery store, what did you expect to learn? And what were you surprised to learn from speaking with people? Hmm, that's a great question. I think that I was expecting them to basically, you know, talk about the hardship of trying to keep the business open and how unsafe they felt and what a struggle it was, you know, having to have their kids uh, be home. And I expected to hear a lot of, you know, um, frustration, um, you know, with the local communities, issues of masking, not masking up, health protocols. Um, and instead, what I found was a lot of stories of resilience. And what I didn't expect to learn, because I was ignorant myself, is the ways in which Yemeni Americans have really been caught between U.S. state policies, um, you know, foreign policies, and these domestic policies. And what I mean by that is what I came to discover is that Yemeni Americans really have relied, relied on cross-border networks and on transnational family arrangements with some family members living in Yemen, while in most cases, the father is working over here and sending money back home, and then eventually bringing the kids over, much as many Latinx migrant families have done too, of course. But in this case, you know, the distance is really huge. And, and so what happened with the Muslim ban is those transnational strategies for family survival got cut off. And so families were destroyed. And so you had mothers and kids stuck in Yemen, unable to be reunited with the dad who it was come back home because of all the kind of, you know, disruptions of remittances. There were cases of children stuck over here with the dad stuck there because the dad had gone back to take care of business or provide aid in the village and so on. And so this family separation crisis I think is one that is largely invisible. And at the time, people were for a moment, again, focused on family separation, the southern border. But all of these stories of, you know, children having a hard time in school, because their grandma was trying to flee the war on a cattle ship, you know, from Yemen to Djibouti, these kinds of stories were not being shared. And so I ended up interviewing the family members, community advocates, immigration lawyers, small business advocates, the store owners themselves, of course, um, and others in the community about the multiple crises that this community was struggling with on a daily basis. Wow, uh, I I was surprised to learn a lot just now. Um, why? Uh, 
I, I'm sure that you can find uh, Yemeni people all over, but why do you think there's such a large population in the Bay Area? Excellent question, because this allows me to tell the story a little bit, which is also a really fascinating one. So Yemenis actually came to California to work in the farms alongside the Mexican and Filipino workers at the time. And so many of them um, at the time were living in the East Coast or in Michigan and Detroit, working in the you know auto factories. But as agriculture expanded and there was a need for low wage labor, Yemenis who also come from an agricultural background were being imported sometimes directly from Yemen on TWA flights. They were chartered flights bringing these Yemeni laborers to the, the, the big agribusiness, you know, um, farmers in uh, the Imperial Valley, Denano County, Central Valley. They were working alongside, um, you know, uh, other immigrant farm workers, and they were very active in the United Farm Workers. So what people often don't know is that, you know, Yemenis were actually very active in organizing with Cesar Chavez during the grape boycott. And they were very radical leftist um, labor activists, one of whom was actually assassinated. He was murdered by a police sheriff in Kern County in California in 1973. And so he kind of became a martyr of the UFW. He was a young, early 20s Yemeni activist called Naji Daifullah. Um, and it's a story that is a very poignant one, you know, because he was basically, you know, murdered for his labor activism. Um, then many of these Yemeni Americans, by the way, you know, started uh, moving to the cities and opened small businesses as non-English speaking immigrants. I think um, it was an easier sector for them to move into and they did it collectively, you know, so whole families opened businesses together. And so that shift I think started happening in the seventies and eighties. Some of them also started working in the Bay Area as janitors. So there's a huge um, you know, segment of the janitorial sector that is also Yemeni American. And um, interestingly, this is just one last vignette I'll share, the um, SEIU Labor Union, which is the Janitorial Workers Union, SEIU 87 in San Francisco, their trade union hall is called Naji Daifullah Hall. And I used to, when I was in the Tenderloin and I used to see this building, I always wondered about it. I was like, why is that got this Arabic name? And then I came to know the story of Naji Daifullah. Wow. Uh, it's it's funny how you sometimes just don't fully think about why something's named something around you, and then to find out it's you know honoring this person's that's kind of amazing. Uh, yeah. I'm sure more people should probably look into it, but I appreciate knowing that now myself. So one thing that kind of came from the pandemic that almost could be seen as a good thing is um, it's it's sort of forced people to embrace technology in ways that aren't ideal for person-to-person -person contact, but can make it easier to have people from all over the world participate in certain events. Uh, for a small example of that is this podcast. I spoke with Betna Angueno while she was in Nairobi. Uh, you're, I'm assuming in Oakland, I'm in Davis, um, but you had had some workshops and digital storytelling events. I know you have one coming up in October, but how have putting those together been for you? And um, yeah, just that whole experience and, uh, goals and whatnot? Of um, you know, I think that's a really uh, kind of important thread in my work, because while I was planning to do digital storytelling as part of this 
research project, um, you know, which was meant to be for public scholarship and the goals of the grant that I got to do this research were to try to make, you know, the work really kind of accessible to the, to the larger public beyond the university. So I had planned to do digital story videos with some community members that I could use for education and for advocacy, but I hadn't expected all of the research to have to move online. And Daniel, to be honest, it was a real challenge because, you know, beyond the university, there are many communities, as you know, who don't have technological access and technological literacy. And so it wasn't easy. So for example, I did this virtual town hall in February of this year on Zoom to try to share the struggles of these essential workers and small business owners during the pandemic and you know, brought in uh, immigration lawyers and community activists to speak about their experiences working on the front lines of the pandemic. And it was really hard because you know they were struggling with the Zoom access and some of them were trying to participate while they were in a car driving down with other people in the community to work. And you know, I actually have been grappling a lot with this idea of the digital divide because I think in addition to medical apartheid, you know, and the lack of, you know, equitable access to healthcare and vaccinations and so on, there's also this kind of digital apartheid and some communities are really not a part of the Zoom world. So I would go into stores and I would see the teenage sons behind the cash register trying to do their classes on their iPhone, you know, while they're dealing with customers, you know, because they were also trying to support their family businesses. So it, it was a struggle. And so I kind of decided to weave that theme into the research itself, this whole idea of, you know, everyone suddenly jumping on to Zoom um, and all the people who kind of get left out of that. Uh, your event coming up on the 20th, uh, that one's going to be all in person, correct? It is, yes. So I was determined if at all possible and if it was safe, which it seems to be, fingers crossed that we could do it in person. But I am going to be screening the digital videos that we did manage to produce, you know, entirely virtually. We worked with a group of people over three weeks, community members, small restaurant owners, refugees. There was a community advocate, a community therapist uh, who worked with us, you know, via Zoom to produce these videos. And so people have really adapted and pivoted. And so I also want to underscore the flexibility of, you know, communities that are not in the academy and how they have also pivoted and been really adaptive and resilient and determined, um, you know, to cope with this. Um, but yes, the event on October 20th is going to actually officially release those videos. It's been deferred for a year and I'm very excited about it. And I think this whole project and the various postponements and deferrals of my own work have made me think about this idea of time, right? I mean, this idea that we have this linear narrative and orderly expectations of when things proceed and when that get disrupted, rather than thinking about that as a problem, it can be actually be, you know, not to be cliched, but it was an opportunity for me to rethink, you know, what I was doing, who I was engaging with, why I was engaging with them and how I was doing it. And following the event, are these videos going to be available online anywhere for those that can participate in person? Absolutely. So the goal of the digital storytelling project was to create videos that could be used widely for community advocacy, because, you know, even in our conversation, you know, all the issues that I've shared, you know, are, are issues that, you know, are clearly not known to the larger public because they haven't been documented and they haven't been studied and discussed. And so it's really my... Uh, sort of little 
sort of attempt in collaboration with people in the community to insert these narratives. And I do think digital media give us an opportunity to do that. And that, you know, people in these communities use digital media and use WhatsApp and, you know, create Instagram videos. And so I'm kind of excited about that. I will also add that I'm going to do an event in Oakland that is going to be, you know, closer to the communities that I've worked with. Um, and that is going to include more of the community activists who, um, you know, I've been collaborating with. Sounds very cool. Uh, before we we call it for this episode, is there anything else that you want to want to cover for this? Um, I, you know, I've appreciated having you on, but I'm happy to discuss anything else you've got, you've got that you're working on. Well, you know, I guess the one last thing I will say is that as someone who is in ethnic studies, I just also want to underscore how ethnic studies has always been a field in which people have tried to respond to pressing crises in the moment. And I think that what I was able to do um, is, you know, part of a long tradition of ethnic studies scholarship that has tried to work in collaboration with movements to lift up the stories that are unheard. And so I think that while my methods might've been a little bit new, I think that the approach that I've been using comes out of a tradition of ethnic studies that goes back to the founding of the programs in Hart Hall, um, you know, in, to which I'm happy to return on Thursday, um, because I think that that has been a site of struggle um, to bring out these marginalized and invisible stories, you know, over the decades. Of course. Well, thank you for being on the Heart Hall podcast and uh, I'll be in Thursday. So stop by, say hi. Daniel, that'll be so wonderful.